If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to Psalm 100. The book of Psalms, and we'll be looking this morning at the 100th Psalm. The book of Psalms, looking at Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Our Father, in these moments now, we pray that you would teach us this psalm and that we, Sunday by Sunday, week after week, would know something of this psalm reflected in our gatherings as we seek to worship you. Teach us, Lord, the heart of worship, and may we know what it's like to experience the nearness and the presence of God as we lift up our voices to worship him. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 100 is among the most well-known psalms in the Bible. And one of the reasons for this is because Psalm 100 uh, is one of the most widely utilized psalms for what we would call liturgical purposes or or worship purposes. Uh, Psalm 100 has been adapted a thousand times over for uh, chants and songs and, and, and praise songs and hymns and things like that. Uh, frequently featured in catechisms. This is one of the texts, if you've been in church for a large portion of your life, perhaps you memorized Psalm 100 as a little child. And in reflecting on this this week, just how well-known and well-beloved this psalm is, uh, it's possible that it's rivaled only by the 23rd Psalm in terms of representation in Christian worship. Very well-known, very loved psalm. And this psalm has been on the lips of God's people We believe now for about 3,000 years. It's highly, highly likely that the Lord Jesus himself would have sung this song even as a little boy, uh, this psalm. Well, the sermon today will not be a straightforward exposition of this psalm line by line. A couple reasons for that. First of all, I think the text essentially speaks for itself. I mean, it's just bursting forth and exploding with meaning. Uh, You don't need to know Hebrew to really capture the ethos and meaning of Psalm 100. Uh, But rather, I want to do something that's a little abnormal for us. Rather than opening up the text line by line, I want to simply draw four lessons for us with respect to the worship of God's people from Psalm 100. Just four basic lessons for our worship as God's people that we can draw specifically from Psalm 100. Now, I need to add this preface as uh, we go into these four lessons. We should just simply recognize that Psalm 100 does not represent the sum total of the Bible's teaching on worship. And so we should seek, as God's people and those who love the Bible, to familiarize ourselves with all the material in the Bible on worship, uh, that that all those texts might inform our thinking as we come into the worship of God. Uh, so, So this psalm's not exhaustive, but I think we can say that our worship of God is never less than this. Uh, the, the, 
emotions and the activities and the thoughts that mark the psalmist in this passage, there's no reason why they can't mark us every time we come to worship God. Now, before introducing these four lessons that I think we can learn from the text, I think it's worthwhile to just ask a simple question. What is worship? Uh, That's a question that perhaps even kids in our Sunday school will be asked. What is worship? And there's plenty of ways we might choose to define that. I'm going to give just a very simple sort of working definition that we could take away from, we could improve, certainly. But in answer to the question, what is worship, I think we could say that worship is a sincere, that is, it comes from the heart, it's not formalism, a sincere, whole-souled engagement in magnifying, praising, and adoring the triune God of the universe. Worship is a sincere, whole-souled engagement in magnifying, praising, and adoring the triune God of the universe. It comes from the heart. It involves the whole person. And it issues forth in magnifying, praising, and adoring, uh, valuing, treasuring the triune God of the universe. In fact, our English word worship comes from that word worthy. We're, we're, we're ascribing worth to a particular individual. In this case, it is the triune God of the Bible, the triune God of the universe. That's a working definition for what worship is. Now, a term I'm going to use a lot this morning is gathered worship. What is gathered worship? That's a special kind of worship. So we're under the big umbrella of worship. What's gathered worship? Well, gathered worship, sometimes called an older term, corporate worship, is that special quality of worship that takes place whenever God's people gather together for the purpose of worshiping Him. I'll read that again. Gathered worship, sometimes called corporate worship, is that special quality of worship that takes place whenever God's people gather together for the purpose of worshiping God. You can think of gathered worship as sort of the public expression and the plural expression of the worship of God. When God's people come together, there's a special quality of worship that takes place. And the Bible again and again acknowledges this special quality of worship when God's people gather together for the express purpose of worshiping Him. So it's legitimate to say there is a difference between worship I may have individually in my quiet time at home, you know, say on my back porch, there's a difference between that type of worship and the worship we're experiencing this morning among God's people. Both are worship, gathered worship has this sort of different dimension to it, which we'll talk about as we move ahead. All right, so now we're ready for the four lessons that we can draw from Psalm 100 with respect to the worship of God's people. The first is by far the most important, the most basic, and the one I'll spend the most time on this morning. Number one, worship is meant to be God-centered. Worship is meant to be God-centered. Please look with me at the text again. I'll try to draw this out in the way I read the text. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now notice some of these possessive pronouns that are used. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Verse 4, we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. 
His steadfast love endures forever. And His faithfulness to all generations. Firstly, and most fundamentally, worship is meant to be God-centered, which has a few implications for us. First of all, if worship is meant to be God-centered, we as God's people must fix our minds and our hearts on Him and Him alone in the context of worship. When we come into the worship of God, we should be fixing our minds and our hearts on Him and Him alone. In all His attributes, in all His excellencies, in all His glory and in all His majesty, in His promises and His pledges, in His warnings and His justice, we fix our minds and our hearts on Him. And so when you come to this place on Sundays and step through the door at 1028, and take your seat at 1029, and you look up to whoever it is that's leading us through the order of worship at 1030, you should be thinking to yourself, this next hour and a half is all about God. In a sense, everything is all about God, but in a special way. We've gathered here to worship God. He's at the center of all this activity and all this commotion. God is at the center of all of this. And this service of worship is to be all about Him, centered on Him, and God helping us, we should fix our minds and our hearts on Him in the context of gathered worship. A second implication of this idea that worship is to be God-centered fundamentally, if worship is meant to be God-centered, all of our worship services and all of the elements of our worship should revolve around this issue. Is God at the center of them? If, if worship is meant to be God-centered, all of our worship services should be God-centered. And that's an interesting uh, uh, word or point in and of itself. We talk about worship services, right? This is a service of worship. I'm a little concerned that some people in the evangelical church today, when they hear that term service of worship, they don't hear it very differently from the way people use that in the business world. You know, for example, I go to get my car serviced at Chatelon Tires. They're performing services. We even say that. This church downtown, they perform services at such and such a time. And the thought is, we're the recipients of the service. You ever made that mistake in how you think about a worship service? That's not at all the idea. The term worship service actually comes from Psalm 100. Serve the Lord with gladness. Serve is a synonym for worship. God's the one receiving the service. God's the one receiving the worship. And therefore, every element of our worship services should be judged by this central issue. Is God at the center of them? Perhaps you've wondered, if you've been coming to Emmanuel Church for any amount of time, you look at our bulletin, you go through the order of worship, why do we do the things that we do? I mean, why, why is this here? Why this and not that? You know, where does all this come from? What's the thinking behind it? This is the thinking behind it. Is God at the center of every element of our worship? Are our services organized in such a way that God is at the center of them? Are they organized in such a way that it's easy for God's people to fix their minds and hearts on God? Or do we complicate things by allowing unnecessary intrusions and incursions into our worship services that rather than uh, magnifying and praising and adoring God, we distract from God? These are questions we want to ask ourselves as we organize the time of worship. Now, I trust you realize, as Bible people, that we don't have the right to organize worship in the way that we want to. 
We organize the worship of God on the basis of God's word. We only do in worship that which the Bible warrants for our worship. So, for example, it might be very entertaining, it might be very inspiring to have an interpretive dance. But we don't see that as an element of worship introduced in the scriptures. And so we don't feel as free agents we can just, well, let's, let's put that in the, in the program today. No, rather we do in worship only that which the Bible itself warrants. Now, if, if you visited a number of churches throughout your life, throughout your pilgrimage, you recognize lots of churches will go about worship in different ways. And I can't tell you how many times I have sat down with Christian people who are just exasperated and discouraged and even depressed. And they always have this sort of question in some form or fashion. Where is true biblical God-centered worship? It's like a barren wasteland out there. They just go from church to church to church to church and I could go to a dozen of them and really never feel like I met with God. You know, there are entire cities in the United States where you could just go from church to church to church and, and really conclude, according to the Bible, worship has never taken place. All sorts of things go on in what are called worship services that aren't worship. And I see a generation of people who are just exasperated and burnt out. Where can I find the actual felt sense of the presence of God? That he's at the center of a worship service and I can really commune with him and worship him and enter into the service to praise and adore and magnify him. So much so-called worship today is overrun by consumerism and production and polish and is designed primarily to entertain the congregation that has come. In other settings, worship is just a really lighthearted thing. The, the, the whole service is really bouncy and, and, you know, put a smile on your face, positive, cheering, a sense of gravity and solemnity and weight and awe and wonder. I wonder if you've ever experienced services like that. Well, you don't have to take my word for it. Just listen to the following diagnoses. The first is given by David Wells in his book, God in the Wasteland. I actually... Uh, shared this quote with the men at our last men's uh, breakfast on John Calvin. Uh, hopefully you recognize, those of you who love the Reformation or are interested in Reformation history, uh, as central as recovering the true biblical gospel was to the Reformation agenda, to recovering the doctrine of justification by faith alone, uh, a, a concern for the Reformers that was equally important was the recovery of the true worship of God. And that was, that was central to the Reformation program and, and John Calvin was sort of at the tip of the spear of that movement back to God-centered worship. And so it was appropriate to raise this quote in that talk. This is what David Wells says in his book, God in the Wasteland. In too many quarters today, evangelicals are inadvertently advertising the fact that God rests only lightly upon the church. That much is evident in the persuasive Reader's Digest spirituality that has now become more or less synonymous with the term evangelical. A spirituality that is light, bouncy, simple, fun, engaging, and uplifting. The church has adopted a sort of cocktail party atmosphere, serving up pleasantries and trying to avoid all unpleasantness. The celebration proceeds apace because the church is free from any worries about enemies. 
This is not to say that no one opposes it or wishes it harm. It is simply the case that it tends to view very few others with any degree of moral alarm. Sunday by Sunday, sin may be confessed, but it is not much connected with anything that happens in the real world. The church has become adept at distributing band-aids for a lot of little cuts and scrapes, fills harmless little prescriptions for the anxious, the lonely, the disconnected. It offers bright techniques for better self-management. And in the midst of the bonhomie, the raised hands, and the fun in the sanctuary, the church pays scant attention to the gaunt figure of death stalking the postmodern world. You ever been in a service of worship where you feel like God rests only lightly on this whole affair? The full weight of his presence isn't being brought to bear. He rests only lightly. It's as though he's not even here. Light, bouncy, trite, glib. Consider this quote from A.W. Tozer, which he penned about 50 years ago in his book, Knowledge of the Holy. I've actually, I think, read this quote a couple of times from this pulpit before. I contend these words from Tozer are more relevant now than they were when he first wrote them. He says this, quote, A condition has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. I refer to the loss of the concept of majesty from the popular religious mind. The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted it for one so low, so ignoble, as to be unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. This low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians today is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. For with our loss of the sense of the majesty of God has come the further loss of religious awe and the consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience or know the meaning of the words, be still and know that I am God. These words mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this period of the 20th century. I was introduced to a term this week, never heard it before. It's a really apropos term. Uh, it's, the phrase is cotton candy Christianity. Cotton candy Christianity. You kids ever had cotton candy before? I, I used to get really excited about cotton candy, and then the letdown was so great. Just so disappointed. You see this big, fluffy thing, and it amounts to like a little bit of nothing at the end of the day. You, know? you eat cotton candy, it dissolves in your mouth, it's artificial sweetener, and just a little bit of sugar at the end of the day. That's all it is, Right? We can talk about cotton candy Christianity. We can talk about cotton candy worship. We can talk about cotton candy songs. Maybe there's a sweet chord progression. Uh, creates a nice aura in the room. But after you get to the end of the song, there's really nothing to it, really. No sustenance, right? Just, just a light, uh, pleasant, sweet little nothing that I just sung. You have cotton candy sermons. I hope I don't preach cotton candy sermons, uh, sermons that really don't have any content at the end of the day. Maybe they're motivational and in some way inspiring, but when you get to Monday morning, there really was nothing, there's no bite to it, no, no truth in it. Well, see, God-centered worship, biblical, true, sincere, God-centered worship has sustenance to it. It has carbohydrates. It has bite. It has substance. It has fullness. It has richness. God-centered worship services, by definition, have God at the center of them and therefore are filled with content. 
We're not talking about something ephemeral that dissolves the second you leave the building, but something that's packed with truth and content. Kids, I wonder if someone asked you, as someone might even this afternoon if you see a friend, if, if someone asked you children, what did you do at church today? What did you do at your church today? What would you say to them? Well, there might be any number of ways you could answer that question. But I would hope it would occur to you that the most basic and simple thing you could say to them is that we worship God today. We're doing all sorts of activities today, but what's at the center of all of them? If we had to reduce them to sort of an irreducible minimum, can't we say, we want to worship God today? May that be the most fundamental basic thing about what we are doing in this place. We're worshiping God Now, kids, you've seen our order of service even today. If you've looked at the bulletin and those who've been coming for months, you might recognize, you can even predict what we're going to do at any given time in the service. Well, I hope you can appreciate that to each element, the effort at least, is that God would be at the center of each one. So we have what we call a call to worship, uh, normally led by myself. Find a text that is to set our minds upon God and to hopefully draw and stimulate people to worship. And then someone gets up here today, it was Ben Allen, and, and offers a prayer. Well, the prayer is directed to who? It's to God. He's at the center of our prayers. We go to talk to him, right? And then we sing a couple of songs. Who are we singing to? We're singing to God. And, and the content of those songs, who's it all about? It's about God. Sometimes we address him uh, directly. Sometimes we describe our relationship to him. But God is to be at the center of all that we sing. Then we have a sermon, right? And if we're opening up God's word, it must be centered upon God, correct? We want to know what God has said to us. See, God needs to be at the center of all the elements of our worship because worship itself is meant to be God-centered. Now, if you've been coming to Emmanuel for some months, you've heard me say probably a dozen times now this phrase, what you win people with is what you win them to. What you win people with is what you win them to. And, and, and the more I reflect on that idea, it has just unlimited applications. Well, when we gather to worship God, organize the worship service, what is it that we hope to win people to? And with what will we seek to win them? See, if, if you have, if you advertise, we have the best band in town, right? People come and they say, wow, you do have the best band in town. Look at that. That's great. Well, then people will come as long as you have the best band in town. So you've won them with the band. You better keep a good lineup up there and a good set list going because what you win people with is what you win them to. If you have an especially charismatic speaker who's filled with anecdotes and good humor and illustrations, they'll come as long as the good humor and the anecdotes and illustrations and the charisma is there. By the same token, if you win people with the awesome, solemn, glorious, joy-filled praise of the triune God, they will continue to come week after week after week because it's there that they encounter the living God. It's there that they've worshipped God. They've experienced something of His presence and His nearness. And I want that. I need that. My soul is, is satisfied in that. And week after week, they will come for the worship of God. There's a profound text that's tucked away in a very long chapter in the New Testament, very late in a book of the New Testament, and a very controversial passage at that. It's found in 1 Corinthians 14, the verse is verse 25. Don't feel like you need to turn there. 
I'll just be frank with you. There's a lot about 1 Corinthians 14 that's very mysterious to me. It talks a lot about tongues and prophecy. And when you gather together, and, and this one is speaking in a tongue, and this one has a prophetic word, how do, you, how do you address that sort of chaos that's taking place? Well, just to set the context of 1 Corinthians 14, verse 25, uh, uh, Paul is talking to the Corinthians about how it's better to prophesy instead of speaking in tongues. And what I think he means by prophesy is not foretell a futuristic event that just so happens to come true. He's talking about speaking prophetically, which we do whenever we speak from God's word and say, thus says the Lord. That's, that's a prophetic word. There's a sense in which we all prophesy if we go to the Bible and speak the Bible to one another. And I tend to think that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 14. You could disagree. That has no bearing on the particular point I'm trying to make now, okay? So here's this context. It's a worship service of the church in 1 Corinthians 14. And here are people who are speaking the truth to one another and speaking God's word to one another. God's word is in the midst of it. God is at the center of the service. And then Paul envisions what he calls an outsider coming into the midst of God's people, presumably an unbeliever coming into the midst of God's people. And he talks about the effect that a God-centered worship service is meant to have on that unbeliever. He says this in 1 Corinthians 14, 25. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. He will fall on his face. He will worship God. And he will declare that God is really among you. Cotton candy worship doesn't produce that effect on people. Only true, biblical, God-centered worship, the supernatural working of God on a human heart can produce that kind of reaction. Well, we as God's people should seek to create an environment where that sort of reaction is not so rare. But God is on full display at the center of the worship service such that one who wants to repent in the context of the service experiences the nearness of God in such a way that they fall down. They worship God. And they confess that God is really among you. Final point I want to make under this first heading. If worship is meant to be God-centered, I, we, have to meet him in the context of worship. We have to meet him in the context of worship. Everything in this service is about encountering God. And we should expect that in the context of worship, we are going to meet him And we're going to have dealings with him. And so, my friend, if you feel a sense of weight and solemnity and gravity in this service, it's probably a good indication that God is near. He's not resting lightly on the gathering. And I wonder, do you know what it feels like? The nearness of God. To to feel his breath upon you. To feel his hand moving upon a congregation of worship. I was once at a conference And there was such a sense of the presence of God, the nearness of God, about 800 people or so in this big auditorium. And the Lord was so blessing the preaching of his word. And there was such a stillness upon the congregation that the lights in the building, which were operated by motion sensors, went out. The congregation was so still, so arrested by the preaching of God's word and a sense of the nearness of God that he was moving in the midst of the people. The lights just went off because no one was moving. You ever experienced something like that? That sort of power, that sort of nearness from God. You may say, Alex, you're beginning to sound very mystical. 
I intend to. There's something deeply mystical about this. Something deeply mysterious about the presence of God in the congregation of his people. But listen, brothers and sisters, we will rarely experience the presence of God in worship if we don't come to him with hearts expecting to meet with him. Hearts that sincerely seek to meet with him. If we don't come anticipating an encounter with the living God, it's unlikely that we'll experience it. I cannot tell you how many times I've left worship services. I've been going to worship services my whole life. Grew up in church. A couple thousand over the course of my life, I calculated. And I can tell you how many times I've left the worship of God ashamed of myself. That I just came distracted and busy and hurried and paid no attention to really what was going on. And before I knew it, the hour, the hour and a half was gone. I had no dealings with God that day. And I left home just empty and ashamed. By the same token... I've been in countless worship services where I've left exhilarated, recognizing that I was just in the presence of God. And he drew near to me and every other soul in that room. And he had deal with me. He revealed himself to me and showed me something of his heart and something of his word and something of his truth. And I walked away knowing things about God at 12.05 p.m. that I didn't know about him at 10.30 a.m. when I walked into that room. God does this for his people. And I encourage you, brothers and sisters, come into the worship of God expecting. I'm going to meet with God. I'm going to have dealings with him. And what's far more important, if he's gracious, he may have dealings with me. And that will happen if God is at the center of our worship. Second point, and I'll move far more quickly now. Second lesson we can learn from Psalm 100. Worship issues forth from the contemplation of truth about God. Do you want a more simple definition? Worship flows from truth. Worship issues forth from the contemplation of truth about God. You notice the psalmist doesn't just say worship God. This is what you should do. You should worship God. He gives them a foundation. Rather than giving them a cup of water, he gives them a spring, a a fountain from which they can worship week after week and day after day. I'm looking particularly at verse three here. We're told to make a joyful noise, serve the Lord, come into his presence. Why? Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And the psalmist goes on to say, enter his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, give thanks to him, bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. What is it that's conditioning the worship in this passage? Listen, my friend, it's, it's not whether or not the guitar is in tune. It's not whether or not the song selection was just so on point this morning. We sung our five best songs that we sing here. It's not uh, whether or not the preacher is wearing jeans or not. It's not whether or not you've had a particularly good week or not, or whether or not your circumstances are particularly uh, pleasant. What's conditioning the worship of God is truth about God. The Lord is God. We're to worship because God made us. Because we belong to him. Because we are his people. And the sheep of his pasture. Because the Lord is good. Because his steadfast love endures forever. And because his faithfulness does endure to all generations. You see what's happening here. Worship is issuing forth from our contemplation of the truth about God. So just like a test case here, an example, whether or not we sing in worship, what's that going to be based on? How are we going to determine whether or not we audibly 
lift our voices to contribute to the singing of God's praises. Well, if I am particularly good at singing, I will enter in. No. Well, if it's a contemporary song, I'll enter in. If it's an older hymn, I don't really like the hymns. Or the opposite. If it's a hymn, I'll enter in. The newer stuff, I don't really, I don't really get all that. No. I don't really like this song. It sounds a little hokey to me. No. Whether or not we sing in Psalm 100 is based on what's true about God. And so people can conclude something about your relationship to God based on whether you sing or not, right? Is that fair? That seems like the simple logic of the text. What's going to determine whether or not I sing today? If the Lord is good. And he is good. And so I'm going to sing. And alternatively, if, if someone isn't singing, we might conclude something about what they think of God. For, for the Lord is not good. Why would I sing? I don't have a relationship with him. This is all a bunch of hoopla to me. I don't really get what's going on in this place, so why would I sing? Yeah, but see, if you got it, if you understood the, the truth, you can't help but sing. That's, that's the logic of this text. Isaac Watts, one of the greatest hymn writers uh, of all time, picks up on this theme in a, a little-known song that he wrote. He says, Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. Let those, let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. You know, those... Those teenagers who sit on the back row. No offense to the non-teenagers who are sitting on the back row today. Uh, to, to, to those, you know, grisly-looking men who kind of mumble in their beards, right? But those refuse to sing who never knew our God. And it goes on to say, But children of the heavenly king must speak their joys abroad. They must do it. Why? Because God is good. His steadfast love does endure forever. His faithfulness does endure to all generations. Well, I'm using singing as the example, but we could apply this to a number of different things in our worship. What's going to determine whether or not my heart goes out to God in prayer today? Not whether or not I got a good night's sleep last night. I'm just going to sit this prayer out. No, prayer is worship. And we worship God on the basis of what's true about Him. So the same thing about sermons. Same thing about the Lord's Supper. Same thing about every element of our worship. Truth, excuse me, true worship is conditioned by truth. It's the truth that produces hearts that worship God. Now, when I say that true worship is conditioned by truth, some people mistakenly get in their minds the idea that we're after a purely intellectual, cerebral type of worship that just produces stuffy people who are logic choppers and just like a bunch of stone-faced people that we know the truth, and so we sing, right? That's not what I'm talking about at all. When truth really acts upon the heart of a person, it ought to produce all kinds of emotions and all kinds of expressions of those emotions. Truth does not just produce thoughts. Truth should produce all kinds of emotions and feelings and experiences based upon that truth. So in a worship gathering, you should see some people raising their hands and some people closing their eyes and bowing their heads, and some people maybe who are tearing up, and some people who make a shout to the Lord and express in various ways the joy and exuberance that ought to mark the worship of God. Listen to what, what Jonathan Edwards has said about this. Have you ever seen a picture of Jonathan Edwards? He's often referred to as the greatest theologian America ever produced, 18th century pastor, preacher, theologian. You ever see a picture of him? He looks very stern. He's got the clerical garb on. He's got the wig and everything. Hard to imagine him giving this quote, but he gave it nonetheless. 
Jonathan Edwards said, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections. That's an old word for emotions. To raise the affections of my hearers as high as I possibly can. He wants emotion. He wants expression of that emotion. This is what he says. Provided that they are affected with nothing but the truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with, namely the truth. So we want emotional expression, hands raised, smiles in our singing exuberance and joy that bursts forth from Psalm 100. That's wonderful. And that should be commended, provided it arises from the truth, which is true about God. Look, there's all sorts of ways people can be manipulated into all sorts of emotions. You do that through music, you can do that through incense, you can do it through all sorts of things. But if it is the truth that's moving upon the heart and softening a heart and melting a heart and, and causing these expressions of emotion and love and gratitude to God, well, then we should commend that. That should be a goal when we gather for worship. Wish, worship issues forth from the contemplation of truth about God, truth about ourselves, and this encompasses our thoughts, our emotions, our actions, even our physical posture, and more importantly, the posture of our hearts before the Lord. I'm nearing the end of my time. I'm just going to mention the third point and then move on to the fourth. The third lesson that we should learn from this psalm is that worship should be marked by exuberance and joy. Worship should be marked by exuberance and joy. You read the Psalms, all of them together, there are lots of other emotions that should be brought to bear on the worship of God. It's legitimate to lament sometimes in the worship of God. It's legitimate longing and desire in the worship of God. It's sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, legitimate to experience shame in the worship of God when we see our sins and that's revealed to us graciously by God himself. But in Psalm 100... It's just bursting forth with joy and praise and exuberance and wonder and awe and thanksgiving. That's what comes to the fore in Psalm 100. And so, brothers and sisters, however we intend to do that, it should be present. I think it's present in our singing. It may be present in every element of the service that we enter this place with exuberance and joy. We enter his gates with praise. We come into his courts with thanksgiving. May it be so. The fourth and final lesson. True worship is impossible apart from faith in Jesus Christ. True worship, the experience of Psalm 100, is impossible apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Verse 5 says, The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That love, that faithfulness knows no greater expression than God the Father sending forth his Son into the world that he might go to the cross, that he might die for the sins of his people, and that he might offer himself a savior to all those who repent of their sins and believe on him and experience everlasting life through the resurrected life of the Lord Jesus. Oh, his steadfast love does endure. It is toward our generation. But see, if, if this is the ground of worship, the fountain of worship, if you don't know the Lord, 
If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you have never experienced faith in Him and forgiveness from His hand, well, then you're not going to be able to worship God aright. It should really be no surprise if you find this all a little bit odd. What are these people doing here? Why are they so excited? Why do they commit themselves week after week to do this? Why do they stay afterwards and spend so much time together? Why are their lives carried about in this certain way where even during the week they're trying to get together with Bible studies and to worship God in different settings? What, what is up with all of that? Well, my friend, it should not be surprising to you that if you don't know the Lord, of course this is not going to make any sense to you at all. That's the only reason we do what we do. It's the only reason we gather. Because we know the Lord. And we've known His steadfast love. And we've experienced His grace and salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so it does not surprise me at all that this setting seems mysterious to you. And so what do you need? You find this just strange. Well, you need to be saved. You need to be changed. You need to become acquainted with the love of God in Jesus Christ. And then you'll have all sorts of reasons to worship God. Then you'll maybe understand what before seemed so mysterious and so strange to you. Why people commit themselves generation after generation to worship the true and living God. Now I want to address one specific audience here this morning. Some of you are here, and you've been here many times. And worship doesn't seem just like, like just a joke to you, or just, this is all just formalism. But you, you've observed the worship of God. Maybe I'm speaking to some of you children here. And you've been watching over these months how we gather week after week to worship God. And you'll admit that this is strange to you. And this is a little bit mysterious. And yet there's something about it that's also wonderful or interesting. Maybe I'm talking to a visitor this morning. And maybe you've visited several other churches. Uh, and you've seen the worship of God. And you've come into this place. And... This isn't distasteful to you and, and wrong in any way, but there's something mysterious, there's something strange, and something a little bit wonderful as well, something attractive as well. And maybe some of you kids, you ask yourself, is this really real? You know, my, my mom and dad say we come to worship God and that he actually is here by his spirit. Is he really? I mean, could, could that really be true? And if so, why, why can't I see that? Why can't I sense that? Why is worship not as wonderful to me as it is for my parents or, or to that other friend or to, to the people sitting around me? Perhaps you feel like an outsider looking in. And in many ways, you actually wish that all of this is true. I was talking to someone last week, and, and they were talking about when they first came to realize that everything in the Bible was true and that there was this period of longing for several months that and I, I wish this was true. I just don't know that it is. Oh, but I wish it was. There was a man named J.I. Packer. And uh, he grew up in church just like you kids. Week after week, came to church. Okay? And when he was in college, he had this amazing experience. And there was this image that emerged in his mind when he first came to observe what he would consider true worship. People that worshiped God, gathered to do so, and really believed that they were meeting with God. And as he observed this now as a college student, there was this image that emerged in his mind. And I'm going to quote Alistair McGrath's words describing this experience J.I. Packer had. He found a picture arising from within his mind 
The picture was that of someone looking from outside through a window into a room where some people were having a party. Inside the room, people were enjoying themselves by playing games. The person outside could understand the games that they were playing. He knew the rules of the game. But he was outside and they were inside. He needed to come in. Now that's a little bit mysterious, right? That's the image that was in J.I. Packer's mind when he experienced true worship. But it was, there's something wonderful here. And I can sense that it's wonderful. But I'm on the outside looking in. Well, what did Jim Packer need to do? He needed to come inside. What he means by that is he needed to embrace Jesus Christ. He needed to understand what all the wonder and all the worship and all the adoration and all the glory and all the majesty was all about. You get that through Jesus Christ. You put your faith and trust in him. And he'll give you a million reasons to sing his praises. And what seems so mysterious, so out of your reach, so strangely warm and wonderful will become yours. But you have to come inside. You have to come to Jesus Christ and you'll know what it's all about. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray now what we prayed at the first, that we would know something of the experience of Psalm 100. We pray that reliably, week after week, we would experience something of the presence of God in our midst, that we would come with hearts expectant, desirous, even pleading with you to experience something of your nearness. May this church be filled with individuals who truly do encounter the living God in the context of worship. We pray, Lord, that you would teach those even now who are outside of Christ how they can know something of the wonder of God-centered worship. We pray, Lord, that all those who are outside would come in, that they would come in through Jesus Christ. He's the only way in. He's the only way in which worship services can be made wonderful, be set ablaze, can be ignited by the contemplation of his love and his grace towards sinners redeemed by his blood. May you work something of that in the heart of each and every individual here this morning that we might all do right and really come to know the presence of God in worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.